I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, Podcast V, The Winter's Tale. The Winter's Tale, the next to last of the four romance plays Shakespeare wrote just before he retired, bears special comparison with Othello. Both plays turn on the main character's jealousy of his wife. For Shakespeare and his audience, the word jealousy also meant suspicion. But the differences are telling. Othello is a tragedy that ends in death and damnation, whereas The Winter's Tale, essentially a comedy, ends in joyful redemption. But there is also a subtle dramaturgical difference. Othello's fall into jealousy takes place during a long and complex seduction by the demon villain Iago in a painstaking psychological study of the way a self-important mind can fall step by step into destructive jealousy. By contrast, jealousy in The Winter's Tale happens instantly, without cause, without reason, without ulterior motive. If there is a demon of jealousy in this play, it remains hidden from sight, except in its effects. Through the first part of the play, Leontes is in a state of harmony with his wife Hermione and his best friend Polixenes. Then, without warning, Leontes suddenly falls into a violently jealous rage, starting at Act 1, Scene 2, Line 108, Too Hot, Too Hot. This sudden and mysterious onslaught of a wrong idea is in keeping with the characteristics of the four last plays, which all involve self-born villainies, supernatural mysteries, divine revelations, and surprise redemptions. Here we are in a world in which the veil between the natural facts of human lives and the spirit invisibly at work in the world is grown thin, a world in which the invisible is dramatically revealed in events with the immediacy of myth, or of an old tale, as the gentlemen call it in Act 5, Scene 2, Lines 28 and 61. Leontes' jealousy, which explodes with such suddenness, falls into the calm and lovely courtly life at Sicilia like a rock thrown with violence into a peaceful pond whose rings of negative influence spread inexorably wider. In his soliloquy at Act 1, Scene 2, Lines 108-207, to Leontes reveals his jealousy to the audience first. Then he attempts to bring Camillo under its influence. The poison spreads to attack Polixenes, who escapes with Camillo from the king's murderous intent. The lords of the court are one by one dragged by the king toward suspicion of Hermione. All of them object to his accusations, but being the king, he overrules them. Even Leontes' own innocent newborn child suffers under his suspicion and is sent off to be exposed and die in a deserted land. Finally, the god Apollo is called to testify in court. In his delusion, Leontes fully expects the god to justify his suspicions. When, through his oracle, Apollo asserts Hermione's innocence, even he is accused of participation in the conspiracy of adultery that is, in fact, the product of nothing but Leontes' jealous imagination. 
When at Act 3, Scene 2, Line 140, Leontes says, There is no truth at all in the oracle, the outward-spreading effects of Leontes' error reach their limit. A servant enters and announces that the king's son and heir, Mamilius, is dead. With a suddenness equal to the onset of his jealousy, Leontes' eyes are instantly opened. Apollo's angry, and the heavens themselves do strike at my injustice. Lines 146 to 147. Hermione, too, as it appears to everyone, including the audience, has died on hearing the news of Mamilius. Thus, from here on, Leontes must live in penitence and sorrow, knowing that his inexplicable jealous suspicion is responsible for the death of his son and of his wife, hence of his whole future, for the oracle has said that the king shall live without an heir if that which is lost be not found. Lines 134 to 136. In Latin, the infant's name, Perdita, means lost. Later, we find the wise Paulina causing Leontes to swear that he will not marry again without her permission, Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 69 to 71, and saying that that permission will never be given unless another, as like Hermione as is her picture, affront his eye, Lines 73 to 75. And so we leave Leontes to his lifetime of repentance. Balancing the suddenness of both the onset and the vanishing of Leontes' jealousy, the play now invites us to imagine a surprisingly long expanse of time. We are taken to Bohemia, where Antigonus, to fulfill his oath and in obedience to a vision of Hermione, leaves the infant Perdita to the mercy of nature. Once he does, he is devoured by a bear as the ship that carried him sinks in a storm. At the same time that the young shepherd, called clown, meaning unsophisticated country fellow, watches the old man die, the old shepherd finds the baby. Thou met'st with things dying, I with things newborn. Act 3, Scene 3, lines 113 to 114. Being good men, the shepherds bury the remains of Antigonus and take up the infant Perdita. This is the explicit turning point of the play, the transition from the old to the new, from Sicilia to Bohemia. It is also the transition from tragedy to redemption, and from winter to spring. To punctuate this transition, Shakespeare brings onto the stage the allegorical figure of time, the chorus, who tells us that sixteen years have passed. Such a passage of time exemplifies the independence of Elizabethan playwrights, and especially Shakespeare, from the rigid adherence to the unities of time, place, and action derived from Aristotle's poetics and insisted on by Sir Philip Sidney in his defense of poesy. This chorus of time splits the play into two halves. The first half depicts the widening tragic consequences of Leontes' sudden jealousy, which has taken place in winter, as we know from Mamilius' observation in Act 2, Scene 1, Line 25, that a sad tale's best for winter, which gives the play its title. The second half of the play 
is the mysterious weaving together of those consequences into a healing redemption in an atmosphere of spring and summer. The actual time of Act Four is late June, the usual time of the sheep-shearing festival that was a standard practice of English country life. It is mentioned by the clown in Act Four, Scene 3, Line 37. But Autolycus has begun the scene, Line 1, by singing of daffodils, which appear in early spring, and Perdita's speech of welcome to the visitors in Act 4, Scene 4, includes references to flowers of early spring, which she lacks now, line 113, flowers of May, the time of the Whitson pastorals, mentioned at line 134, and the flowers of late summer, lines 79 to 82. Florizel, whose name itself contains the idea of flowers, likens Perdita to Flora, the goddess of flowers, line 2. Thus, Act Four is suffused with the atmosphere of springtime and summer, as befits the developing love of the young lovers. But the idyllic pastoral world of Act Four is not without its conflict. The comic jealousy in the song sung by Autolycus and the Shepherd Girls, lines 306 to 307, harmlessly echoes the tragic jealousy of Leontes. More threateningly, Polixenes breaks up the joy of the festival in an attempt to break up the young lovers. As in the first half of the play Polixenes was the unwitting occasion of the ruination of the court of Sicilia, so here he is the unwitting driver of everyone's return to Sicilia. He reasonably opposes Florizel's love for a shepherd girl because he cannot know that Perdita is in fact a royal princess and a perfectly natural object for the love of Florizel, who was led to her by divine intention under the guise of a natural event, mentioned by Florizel at lines 14 to 16. I bless the time when my good falcon made her flight across thy father's ground. Polixenes' obstruction unintentionally drives the couple to flee, and, thanks to Camillo's ulterior motive, they flee to Sicilia. All the strands of motivation, the oracle of Apollo, the lover's love, the shepherd's virtue, the king's devotion to the good of the commonwealth, the longing of Camillo to return home, even the vice of Autolycus, are woven together to make possible the great final reunion. And then Shakespeare shocks the audience with two utterly surprising theatrical devices. First, he relegates the actual reunion and recognition scene to a third-person prose narration. The revelation of who Perdita really is, the fulfillment of the oracle, the reconciliation of the two kings, the rewarding of the shepherd, the report of the death of Antigonus, all of these happen offstage, described movingly but simply in wonder-filled court gossip prose, rather than high dramatic verse, by three random gentlemen. At this point, the audience is caught between joyous fulfillment and theatrical outrage. This is all wonderful, of course, but why aren't you showing us this reunion, which is obviously the end of the play? Why are you just telling us about what we have been longing to see with our own eyes. 
these questions must have been the more pressing for those who had read Robert Greene's Pandosto, the very popular prose romance on which the winter's tale is based. That story ends with the reunions described in Act 5, Scene 2 of the play. But here the entire denouement is only reported, and the scene containing what ought to have been the dramatic conclusion of the play ends with everyone marching off to look at a statue. Where is our fulfillment to come? From some dumb statue? Dumb in both senses? Has the playwright lost his mind? Well, the statue is a masterpiece, we are told by the third gentleman in Act 5, Scene 2, many years in doing, and now newly performed by that rare Italian master, Giulio Romano, who, had he himself eternity and could put breath into his work, would beguile nature of her custom, meaning put nature out of business, so perfectly he is her ape, meaning nature's imitator. He so near to Hermione hath done Hermione, that they say one would speak to her and stand in hope of answer. Lines 96 to 102. At lines 110 to 111, the first gentleman adds, Every wink of an eye some new grace will be born. If you follow the use of the word grace through the play, you will discover how Shakespeare infuses the literal story with layer upon layer of spiritual implication. I'll discuss this in a moment in Key Line 1. As it turns out, the third-person report of Act 5, Scene 2 sets us up for the second radical theatrical surprise in Act 5, Scene 3, the great statue scene, which achieves nothing less than an experience of the meaning of resurrection. In Pandosto, the Hermione character, who has died, as we are told in the equivalent of our Act Three of the play, really is dead. In this final scene of the play, looking at the statue of Hermione, we watch her come back to life. Of course, in the play, it is not that a statue is literally being brought to life, like Galatea by Pygmalion. At the literal level, Hermione has not, in fact, died, but has remained in hiding for the sixteen years until the oracle is fulfilled, and that which was lost is found. But in the empathic experience of the audience, as of Leontes, it is as if Hermione is rising from the dead. The scene then becomes a reunion scene, beyond anything that could have been depicted of the reunions described in the prose conversations of Act Five, Scene 2. The gentleman in the previous scene described the joy of the reunions and reconciliations of this world, and Shakespeare intentionally distances them from us in order to prepare us for the greater reunion yet to come. Here, in Act Five, Scene 3, the reunion with the living Hermione becomes an image of that reunion promised by the Christian's faith in resurrection and hope for heaven. Paulina, the wise woman of virtue, pretends to be engaging in the very kind of white magic that Prospero will actually wield in Shakespeare's next play, The Tempest, saying, It is required you do awake your faith, lines 94 to 95. 
but she does so to protect the others from dying of shock. In reality, she has been setting them up, as Shakespeare has set us up, to experience and to be able to bear the unimaginable joy of living reunion with those whom the wide gap of time and apparent death have dissevered. Lines 154 to 155. As Paulina says to Hermione in line 103, from death, dear life redeems you. Back in Act 2, Scene 1, the young Mamilius had asked whether his mother wanted a tale merry or sad. She answers, as merry as you will, whereupon he says that a sad tale's best for winter, lines 23 to 25. And so it is for the world of time, space, error, and death. The sadness is real. Unlike his mother, Mamilius has actually died. But this sad winter's tale is also suffused with grace. And grace, if we are penitent, redeems us from time and space and error and even death. Depicting that grace at work and wedded to virtue, the winter's tale ends by being a tale far beyond as merry as you will, a tale of transcendent joy. Now here are four key lines of the play. Key line one. The word grace, with its cognates, graces, gracious, is particularly associated with Hermione, who both depends on grace and, like her daughter, embodies it. Both are often called gracious. With grace to boot, Act 1, Scene 2, Line 80, Hermione asks for heavenly grace in introducing the distinction between unmarried sexual love and innocent married love. A few lines later, she hopes, would her name were grace, line 99, and tis grace indeed, line 105, about her having said yes to marriage with Leontes. When in Act 2, Scene 1, she has been falsely accused by Leontes, she tells her women not to weep. When you shall know your mistress has deserved prison, then abound in tears as I come out. This action I now go on is for my better grace. Lines 119 to 122. At Act 3, Scene 1, Lines 20 to 22, Dion, about the something rare that will rush to knowledge when the oracle is read, says, Gracious be the issue, meaning the outcome. In the next scene, Act 3, Scene 2, Hermione appeals to Leontes' conscience to admit how I was in your grace, how merited to be so, lines 47 to 48. Time, the chorus, tells us that Perdita, after 16 years, has now grown in grace equal with wondering, Act 4, Scene 1, lines 24 to 25, and Perdita herself wishes grace and remembrance to Polixenes and Camillo, both in disguise, Act 4, Scene 4, line 76. Later in that scene, Autolycus sarcastically accuses the shepherd of offering to have his daughter come into grace, lines 777 to 778, meaning marry into the royal family. Of course, in this sense, Perdita is in grace already, being herself the daughter of a king. As quoted earlier, the first gentleman observes that every wink of an eye some new grace will be born, 
Act 5, Scene 2, lines 110 to 111. In the final scene, Act 5, Scene 3, Paulina mentions the surplus of Leontes, grace, line 7, which we read in two senses. Leontes is doing a favor, an act of grace, to Paulina by visiting her house to see the statue of Hermione, and Leontes has a surplus of heavenly grace descending upon him as he is about to find out. Leontes observes about Hermione that she was as tender as infancy and grace, lines 26 to 27, uniting in our minds the images of Hermione and Perdita. Finally, Hermione calls upon the gods to pour your graces upon my daughter's head, lines 122 to 123. The grace associated with virtue characterizes both Hermione and her daughter throughout, and the grace that descends as the unmerited gift of heaven suffuses the second half of the play with its healing. Key Line 2 In Act 1, Scene 2, at lines 138 to 142, Leontes, in the midst of his access of jealousy, observes, Affection, thou dost make possible things not so held. With what's unreal thou coactive art, and fellowest nothing. Leontes asserts that affectio, a sudden invasion of the mind by passion, can join itself, fellow used as a verb, to unrealities, nothing, and make things seem real that are not. This is exactly what is happening to him. His sudden jealousy makes him see infidelity where there is none. But he cannot recognize that this principle applies to him. Rather, he uses it to reinforce the delusions of the affectio itself. Then tis very credent, meaning believable, thou mayest co-join with something, and thou dost, lines 142 to 143. The stress here is on the word something, in antithesis with nothing in the previous line. If the passion can invent things that are not real, then how much more credible is it that the passion can attach itself to real things? He concludes that that is the case with him, that the infidelity he imagines has actually happened. Key Line 3 At Act 2, Scene 2, Line 58, Paulina says that Perdita is freed from the prison of the womb by law and process of great nature. At Act 4, Scene 4, Line 88, Perdita herself rejects the human art that attempts to share with great creating nature. These phrases point to the forces at work in nature and human life, forces before which Hermione, Paulina, and Perdita are humble and with which they are especially in touch. Perdita rejects the horticultural art that would modify nature itself, just as she would not want Florizel to desire her only because of superficial makeup. Act 4, Scene 4, lines 79 to 103. Her commitment to what is natural reinforces our awareness that though neither of them knows it, Perdita is in fact Florizel's natural equal. Great creating nature is arranging things better than human beings can know, and virtue lies in letting that great nature take its course. This idea of nature 
is not the modern idea of an unconscious material force subject to nothing but physical laws and accident. For Shakespeare and his audience, great creating nature is itself the creation of God and the incarnation of his will. Key line 4 The words used by Cleomenes and Dion in Act 3, Scene 1, celestial, reverence, ceremonious, solemn, unearthly, and the description of the journey of Cleomenes and Dion to Delphi as rare, pleasant, speedy, evoke complete faith in the authenticity and validity of Apollo's oracle, which will be read out at court in the next scene. Act 3, Scene 2, lines 132 to 136. Now, here are five specific notes to help you in your reading. Specific Note 1. The name Polixenes, which replaces the name Aegisthus in Green's Pandosto, the source of the story, originally comes from Homer. Polixenus led some forces of Elis to Troy in Iliad Book 2, lines 615 to 624. Shakespeare had used the name in Troilus and Cressida for one of the Greek forces killed in battle, Act 5, Scene 5, line 11 of that play. But the name comes from the Greek Polixenos, the X being not the Greek letter chi, but the letter xi, the GS or KS sound, meaning very hospitable, entertaining many guests, from xenos, meaning stranger, but probably more significantly from xenu, which means to entertain, to make into a guest, or to make a treaty of hospitality with someone. The emphasis of Act 1, Scene 1 is the mutual hospitality of Leontes and Polixenes. Based on their names, one could think of Polixenes meeting Leontes as hospitality meeting lion. And to Shakespeare's ear, perhaps the contrast in sounds was as important as the meanings of the root words. The sounds of their names make them not only brothers in containing each an L, but also contrasting in the difference between the sharpness of the X in Polixenes and the nasal N in Leontes. Specific Note 2 In Act 1, Scene 2, lines 109 to 208, Leontes' soliloquies are characterized by language spinning out of control to illustrate the wild disorder in his mind spurred by his sudden jealousy. His words leap from topic to topic, repeat, interrupt themselves, exhibit passion, mangling reason. This chaotic language bursts into the calm, peaceful, and playful language of warm affection and celebration of friendship with which the play and this scene began. Specific Note 3 Act 1, Scene 2, Line 148 What cheer, how is it with you, best brother? is assigned to Leontes in the first folio text, but that must be a printer's error, and the line must in fact be said by Polixenes as a continuation of his How, my lord, in the previous line. It is Leontes who is looking unsettled and distracted and moved, evoking the queries from both Polixenes and Hermione about what is bothering him. Specific Note 4 In Act 1, Scene 2, the words browse, line 119, neat, 
meaning both tidy and cattle, line 123, steer, heifer, and calf, line 124, pash, and shoots, line 128, hardening of my brows, line 146, and forked, line 186, all refer to the idea of horns, based on the common notion that a cuckold, a man whose wife was unfaithful to him, grew horns on his forehead, visible to everyone but himself. Specific Note 5 At Act 5, Scene 1, Line 75, the folio text assigns the phrase, I have done, to Cleomenes. It should be assigned to Paulina, as the Riverside Shakespeare assigns it, thus, Paulina, unless another as like Hermione as is her picture affront his eye. Cleomenes, good madam. Paulina, I have done. Yet if my lord will marry, I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Thank you.